you kind of embrace it because you're like, I came here for this. Every cell in my body is going to be used to get to the end of this thing. You will never be that tired. You will never be that sore. And for me, it was like, this is what I'm here for. Like, I want to feel everything, see everything. I don't want to shut it out. I don't want to, you know, no, I want all of that stuff. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice. You peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk Black Jesus. This is The Adventure Stash with Payson McKelvin. Hello and welcome back to the show. To start this week, I'd like to paint a little picture for y'all quickly. I've been racing professionally for eight, nine years at this point. And after all those years of suffering participating in crazy events all around the world, competing against incredible talent from all different backgrounds, all different styles of racing, you get exposed to a lot of pain. I think in this day and age, life for a lot of us, especially in the Western world, is pretty easy from a discomfort standpoint. You know, barring some sort of illness or injury, life is pretty pain-free these days. We're not running from wild animals. We're not having to chase down animals for food. I think as cyclists, whether at a pro level or or just someone that enjoys pushing yourself, you start to think that this relationship with pain that comes part and parcel with cycling is a point of pride in a way. And when you do it full time, some of us even like to claim, you know, that we get paid to suffer. Many examples come to mind of just crazy efforts that I've put in over the years that I'm proud of. The White Rim comes to mind, a five-hour and 45-minute solo time trial that left me just on my hands and knees, um, racing Dirty Kanza, trading attacks with gravel legend Ted King at mile 185 of a 200-mile race, um, going toe-to-toe with my good friend Howard Grotz two years in a row at the Marathon National Championships, and um, just going hammer and tong until it came down to nearly photo finish sprints both years. The list goes on for a while, and after a while, you start to think, I'm a pretty tough person. Enter bike pack racing. Enter the Colorado Trail. Somewhat on a whim, I decided that I wanted to try to ride the Colorado Trail fast, and within two weeks of deciding, I was doing it. Uh, It was a whirlwind, trying to pull all the equipment together, trying to pull as much information together as I could. Uh, I'd never been bikepacking. I'd barely ridden in the dark. And yet, I decided to dive in and just try to ride this 530-mile, 75,000-foot of climbing route from Durango, Colorado to Denver, Colorado, which is considered one of, if not the most notorious and physically challenging bikepacking routes in the world. The record stands at a little under four days, regardless of direction, which is crazy. The record holder, Jesse Jacobate, in the direction that I chose to do it, Durango to Denver, happens to be this week's guest. He's still the record holder. And to set that record, 
He had to try five times. And on that fifth and final attempt, when he was successful, he slept one hour a night between 23-hour pushes over the most challenging, heinous, unbelievable terrain you can imagine. When I set out on this Colorado Trail Record Challenge, I knew that the likelihood of setting the record was pretty low, but I figured worst case scenario, I'd get some awesome experience. That's exactly what happened. And I also didn't set the record. (laughs) I didn't even finish. As it turns out, every single one of those other suffer-filled experiences that I've had on the bike that I thought gave me a special relationship with suffering and made me someone that was able to endure a significant amount of suffering and even be good at it at times, I was completely humbled. All of those other experiences were nothing compared to trying to ride the Colorado Trail fast. Nothing compared to being so completely exhausted that as you're pushing, hike-a-biking your bike up unbelievably steep, unrideable pitches at 13,000 feet, so steep that you're falling over, you can't even stand up anymore. 3 a.m., ran out of food, ran out of fluids, below freezing temperatures, don't really know where you are. Day one. The sun hasn't even risen once yet. And you have to do this four days in a row, theoretically. This challenge completely recalibrated my understanding of suffering. Jesse and I go into a little bit of my experiences some, what that felt like, what it was like inside my head during that time. But really, we roll up our sleeves and learn, and I get to learn what it takes to be someone that owns this trail, owns this route. And the fact of the matter is, I finally asked Jesse point blank, were you ready to die for this record? Were you willing to die out on that trail in the name of getting this record? Because that's the degree to which it seems like he was obsessed with it. And the answer was yes. And I know exactly what that feels like now. This is a long intro, but this is one of my all-time favorite episodes, one of my all-time favorite conversations, period. I have so much respect for Jesse. I have so much respect... For Neil, who has the record in the other direction, I have so much respect for anyone who's ever done this trail fast, anyone who's ever tried to do it fast, or anyone who's ridden it, period, really. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with, hands down, one of the hardest people I know, absolute badass of a human. Speaking of badass, I would like to thank very badass company Zwift for stepping up once again and being a supporter of the show. But this time they've gone above and beyond. We just signed a partnership with them that will make them by far our longest standing supporter, and I could not be more excited. I'm a huge fan of Zwift. I've had so much fun on Zwift personally. It's really an addictive platform once you try it. And they're always coming out with really fun new initiatives that regardless of where you are, create a sense of community in a really special way. Currently, starting October 1st and running well through November, they're running their Zwift Academy. Zwift Academy is a program that includes training plans, group rides, and, (laughs) believe it or not, the opportunity at a pro contract. This is one of the coolest things that Zwift does, I think. Basically, tens of thousands of people participate in this Zwift Academy which is just a really cool opportunity regardless of your your riding level or goals. But if you happen to be an incredible achiever, you have the opportunity 
to sign a contract, potentially, with either Alpecin Phoenix, if you're a male rider, that's a professional road team. Matthew Vanderpool happens to ride on that team. Or the Canyon SRAM women's team. Simply put, school is back in session with Zwift Academy. You can join them for insights into your strengths on the bike, learn how to elevate your performance with Zwift training, and take your fitness, your avatar, and potentially your cycling career to new heights. I just mentioned about how you could potentially earn a pro contract. That's just insane to me. So cool. Anyway, you can go to Zwift.com slash Z-A road men's for the men's Zwift Academy or slash ZA road women's for the women's Zwift Academy. Super cool opportunity. Go check it out. Until then, here's Jesse Jacobate. Thanks for listening. Usually when you go into things after you've been doing it for, for a while, you have a lot of self-confidence yet. You have a pretty good idea of how it's probably going to go. Going into this thing, I had no idea. Like I didn't want to make any predictions. I didn't even really allow myself to fantasize at all because it was so, so out there. Um, yep. um, and to go in just like, you know, blindfolded almost to an extent was uh, kind of refreshing and also super, super scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's neat to be scared, right? Like, you know, butterflies when you're a little kid, I remember, you know, being like 13 for one of my first races and you're just like, you don't know what to expect. And then, yeah. you know, you can be an adult and experience all of that all over again. Yeah, and yeah. you know, you're like, I don't know if I can make this thing. Yeah. 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 So anyway, rewinding a bit, um, yeah. how are things with you? What are you, uh, what are you up to? Are you, are you in Colorado Springs still? Um, yeah, I'm based out of Colorado Springs. Uh, I've been spending a bunch of time in Glenwood Springs as well. Um, my girlfriend lives up here. So with the, uh, old Rona thing going on, it's been actually pretty good at working remotely. So, yeah. uh, as long as I got good internet, I'm good to be wherever I need to be. Yeah. And you have a SRAM email address. Are you still with SRAM? I am. Yep. Okay. Yep. I've been a design engineer with SRAM for almost 11 years now. Wow. What department do you work in? What, what do you focus on specifically? Uh, RockShop product. So okay. I, I worked on, I was part of the team that did the wireless seat post, yeah. the access seat post. And then um, I'm doing focusing on rear shocks right now. Yeah. So track just came out. There's the new slash. Um, I was, I worked on that, the rear shock for that bike. That was a specific, um, collaboration with Trek. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny you say that. Cause I actually, I'm, I'm so behind on Instagram stuff right now. You know, when you were, when you had your, when you're at the peak of your cycling career, that wasn't something you had to mess with as much. I don't yeah. think. Um, but in this day and age, I mean, that's a whole, it's like the other half of the job and I'm mm -hmm. so behind just answering questions, equipment questions. And, one of the most frequent ones is about the suspension I used for the Colorado trail. And I everyone mean, wants to know about this, uh, non-stock rock shocks, ultimate, um, shock that I have on my top fuel. And, um, I'm happy to do a little extra background so I can, you know, really answer the questions well, but it's kind of funny that that's, uh, that's literally what you do. That's cool. Yeah. 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 It's just been, it's been a uh, kind of a neat balance of life of, you know, definitely maintaining a career and then still getting out there and getting after it. Cause you know, I, I was a weekend warrior forever. And then in my mid twenties decided to try to make a real stab at bike racing. And I thought the only way to do that was just clean the slate and just quit my job and, you know, just be a dirt bag, um, and pedal my brains out. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was a really fun, uh, 
part of my life. But then there was a point where I just felt, you know, I did everything I could in that, you know, racing circuit. Um, and, you know, my expectations were honestly to sit in a cubicle and just be happy, you know, thinking back of the days when I was athletic. But it turned out moving to Colorado, um, when I, you know, so-called quit racing, I just started riding even more. Yeah. That's I didn't have a, I didn't have a coach yelling at me to like, stop doing more hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you literally did the polar opposite. You just started doing bike rides where you don't stop for multiple days. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm like, well, I haven't been to Crested Butte. Well, look at this map. When you see all the lines, I'm like, well, what if I just ride all of these things? So I was just yeah. like riding sun up to sun down, yeah. um, you know, pretty regularly. And amazing. when I saw that, so the, the Colorado trail race was conceived when I was in living in Puebla at the time. And when I saw that, I'm like, I have to do that. Like, it just seemed so amazing. Yeah. But, um, I ended up, uh, that summer I moved to Connecticut for two years. So that kind of got put on the back burner, but it was like gnawing at me. And as soon as I moved back to Colorado, there was like, nothing was going to get in my way. And I had to do that thing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I can definitely relate to that. My, my experience with the Colorado Trail obviously has been way more confined at this point, but that was uh, something that surprised me too is, I guess it was, uh, I don't know, at this point, a little over, it sounds hilarious to say, but it was a little over three weeks ago that I decided to even do this Colorado Trail thing. And as soon as I decided, I was like, okay, yes, I'm going to do this. I think I averaged probably five hours of sleep a night because it just so consumed my mind and all of the problem solving that had to happen between zero experience and starting the thing was so overwhelming that the gears in my mind were just constantly turning. And I was, you know, researching what you had done, researching what Neil had done, researching, you know, Kurt Ref Snyder, researching, you know, all of these people that have had success on this trail going relatively fast. And then also just talking to all the people in the Durango community, because with it being a pandemic year, um, a bunch of my friends had just ridden the Colorado trail. Some of them, you know, relatively fast, some of them in a group of five over the course of like 12 days, you know, all over the map. Yeah. And so I was just talking to as many people as I could trying to figure out this massive thing in two weeks was so consuming. Um, and even after the fact, like I still am thinking about it constantly, <laughs> like there's something about a massive, uh, like route goal versus a results based goal, yep. of traditional racing. That's just a completely different animal from a competitive standpoint. That is super, super intriguing. Yeah. It's a logistics puzzle that, you know, on top of the physical elements, you know, being fit, being light, but then there's all the gear that you got to worry about. Do you take a sleeping bag? Do you take a bivy sack? Yeah. And then like, well, where's my water? Where's my food? Yeah. And, and just crazy to think that you were trying to piece that together in a couple of weeks. Cause <laughs> I swear I spent like eight months, you know, piecing every aspect together. And I had all these spreadsheets listing out. You know, I went through the Colorado Trail uh, guide handbook that has like all the stream crossings yeah. and had like every mileage written down and then backtrack, you know, from each stream crossing, like what's the minimum water I should probably make, you know, because I added an algorithm based on how much elevation you're going to gain at each leg and then how many miles it was to try to, you know, you can't just go miles per hour and right. elevation isn't the only thing. So it was just like, 
you know, trying to perfect that puzzle from the beginning, but it was just so, like you said, it's overwhelming. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would have liked to have seen your, your three weeks of prep there of like, you don't even know what you don't know, right? So to yeah, get exactly. started on that. That's kind of what I resigned myself to, you know, five days out or so after just thinking myself in circles. And um, at a certain point, I just realized, and what people like you just kept telling me is, um, yeah, just, just get out there and limit your expectations because there, there is nothing that will replace experience. And there are so many little things that uh, you, there's no way to predict. Um, actually, so you just mentioned something kind of crazy. The engineer and you coming out, it sounded like you put together an algorithm, like literally? Well, it it wasn't too complicated, but it was definitely an equation of speed that had um, taking into the account the amount of elevation gain or loss you were going to do to adjust what that pacing would be. Because, you know, it was, bef- I think track leaders might have been there, but everyone's times were disheveled and the course was changing. Like the first couple of years, there was major changes that you couldn't know, you know, when you were going to get to BV. But that, you know, and so I was you know, again, trying to like, for me, I didn't want to carry a single calorie extra, a single drop of water extra. And, you know, I definitely hypersensitive over the weight element. It was really important to me. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's just a more, the engineering in me too, right? Like, it's like, yeah, I get this physical thing of racing, which I love and I like engineering and numbers. So it was just like everything you could think of all mashed in. And I wanted to do the best at everything I could control. Yeah. And, but it was funny because then, you know, uh, I remembered about halfway through, I realized like when it got dark and cold, I wasn't drinking at all and I was still performing fine. Mm-hmm. And I had all these things of what I was going to do. And I'm like, I just threw it all out the window because I realized there's streams every like, you know, 15 minutes in a lot of the, the trail. So all of this planning, I'm like, I don't, it does, I don't need to worry about this and stress over, is it this river or the next one and when I need to fill up the next bottle? So I just was like, the hell with it. And it was just kind of winging it. Yeah. And then I got myself into trouble and realized um, I had passed the, the final uh, stream at Spring Creek because the first year was Durang- uh, Denver to Durango. And so I passed the stream and I went down to like a half a bottle and then I didn't have anything for the next six hours. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. So I ended up like there was some some like the volcanic volcanic rocks with the little like dimple like cups in them that had like a half an inch of water in there. So I started like bending over and slurping up whatever water I could get out of those things because I was like, I had nothing and I'm like, uh so you know <laughs> all so the idea funny. of planning, throwing it out the window, and then it totally bit me in the ass. <laughs> yeah. So that was one of the, so when you came up with and I don't know how much detail you can go into without totally going over the heads of us non-engineers, but in terms of that algorithm you put together, uh, that was early on, like in the first couple of times you did the route. Well, that definitely, that was the first time. Like I was so scared going into it, but I knew like I wanted to do this. I had done some really fast kind of mountaineering hiking stuff and then bike racing. And I had done some 24 solos and the vapor trail so getting into the race, it was like, well, this is multiple days. I don't even know what that looks like. I had bike pack before, but I figured, you know, I could put the pieces together. You know, I really wanted to do well. So all of that prep beforehand was the first year. And then 
like you said, the experience you get from doing it once is immense. And then, you know, doing it year after year after year, because I did it um, five out of six years in a row. I had to miss one because work was too busy, but it was just, you know, <laughs> it was all I thought about. Although, you know, it was funny because you said you're already thinking about it again. Because the first year I finished, I was like, this thing is insane. I'd already heard some stories that like Ethan had done it three times before. And I was like, I don't understand. Like my body felt completely broken and it didn't feel like it was ever coming back. And I'm like, this is nuts. Like this makes no sense at all. I am never doing this again. And then probably about four months later, then I'm like, okay, I have to do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's funny is um, when I did pull out a copper, I felt so unbelievably unhealthy. Um, Like my legs actually felt okay. Muscularly, I was okay. But my wrists were completely done. Like I couldn't unscrew the cap of a Gatorade. Yeah. my, I had so much swelling, um, and the decision I'd made at Copper was just take a real nap, kind of like what Lachlan decided to do. Yeah, uh, he wasn't able to sleep in those first forty-eight hours, and I think I managed thirty minutes. And so I thought, okay, well, Lachlan went through this pretty similar scenario. I remember him saying that he was utterly broken at Copper. He slept eight hours got up the next day and, and did a great ride. I said, I thought, okay, I'll do that. And then uh, my girlfriend, and we can get more into this later, but my the self-supported component of my ride was done um, yeah. because I'd blown up a pedal. But I just wanted to try to ride it fast and just get the experience and have the personal pride of having completed it fast. Long story short, uh, Nicole was there, and I told her, you know, I want to take a good rest and then decide once I've rested whether where we're at. And she said, I just want you to look in the mirror. Just look in the mirror. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you, there's no, you're not even going inside of her. Of course, you're not looking in a mirror. And um, my face was so swollen and it was so striking and it was really scary. And then I kind of inspected the rest of myself and my fingers were just sausages. My feet were total sausages. And uh, I had some numbness, but mostly it was just this super, super bad tingly. Um, in my okay. fingers. And I mean, you know, when you go into competition mode, you just shut the rest of that out and you focus solely on just moving forward, optimi- optimizing that forward speed. And so I've just been in denial of all that other stuff. And then the cough set in and it was so bad. It was like the worst cough I've ever had by a long, long way. Um, and then I had these crazy temperature things where I was getting super, super hot and then freezing cold, just like I couldn't regulate body temperature. Um, but when I saw my face is when I thought, eh. and she has a medical background and she said, you know, you have pulmonary edema for sure. And that's when I finally, with her help, convinced myself to stop. But point is where I'm going with all that is in that moment, I thought, no way I'm ever doing this again. This is an unhealthy thing. Theoretically, I have plenty more years ahead of me for my normal style of racing. I don't want to harm that. Um, And then within 24, 48 hours, I was just thinking about all the things I would change, all the things I'd learned, uh, all the ways, you know, I I felt like I could do it better. But the thing, and I feel good now. I mean, two two weeks on, uh, legs feel good. I feel rested. But when I stand up in the morning, my feet do not feel good. I've just got this really gnarly, tingly stuff going on in my feet and that's what concerns me and and that's one thing i'd love to hear more about from you because i know this 
mission has done a serious number on your body too. And I'm curious just about that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you said, you know, it, it, body just gets pulverized. You know, my toes, my big toes would be numb for like, I don't know, probably three months afterwards. So and, your big toes, too, that's interesting. Cause it's my, it's only my big toes that are left in terms of yeah. being weird. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause, cause yeah, you get your body super beat up. And then after like a week or so, a lot of stuff settles down, but the big toes stay numb. My hands are really weak and it was weird. Like like you said, you were saying you can't unscrew a bottle for me. I couldn't like pinch a zipper. And, uh, I realized riding a road bike, I couldn't shift like to, to have your hands sweep, like with this kind of big broad thing. Um, and then looking at it more, I realized if I was trying to use any force to push my fingers, like my hand straight from a fist open straight, like, like this and resist, I couldn't resist any force at all. Whoa, um, this is so a factor during. Uh, well, it was, it was all deteriorating during the ride. Like I felt like the first two days you're doing pretty good. Like you can move well, everything's working, you know, your body can handle that. But then like day three, day four, things just keep crumbling. Um, you know, I had a friend that he did it, I think in 2012 and he happened to have a regular physical like a day or two after he finished. And he, you know, he gave it an honest effort. I think he was like just around five days. And his doctor freaked out when he saw the results, right? Like, I think all of us, when you get that thing done, or even you just like three days in, yeah. we're medically in a really bad place. Yeah. And, and depending, you know, there's people that tour it. And I think that they're a little better off, but you know, uh, it meant everything to me. And I was willing to do all sorts of bad decisions because like my entire existence was about doing this damn trail as fast as I could mm-hmm. and seeing how Ethan and FA, it just encompassed them too. Like it just felt like, yeah, this was a mission that we were all on and you know, any sacrifice was completely worth it to just shave off time. So, you know, my hands would just by day three and four getting zippers pulled up was like almost impossible. Like just dexterity was just almost completely disappearing, but you're just like, you know, whatever you can do to keep moving forward. That was the only thing that mattered. But I think in the earlier ones too, I always felt like, hey, I've got the racer background. And rather than just being like full on stubborn and not sleeping, I'm going to sleep, I'm going to recover, I'm going to pedal faster. And that ended up like I felt like in the earlier ones, it gave my body a chance to reset a little bit, you know, because I think the first one I was sleeping around like seven, six, seven hours tonight. And that was all until... um, the second last try, I was still sleeping like four hours a night. So like physically you're still, you know, pretty ruined. Uh, Cause the first year too, like my Achilles heel was really, or Achilles tendon was all super pissed off. Sounds um, <laughs> and then I think after the first one realizing like literally my hands were probably my limiting factor. So whenever you're doing hike a bike, I would never grab the handlebars like you're riding. Cause you're like, if you're riding, you have to do that. So if you're not, don't ever hand, you know, you got to just limit that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it just, you know, mostly the hands ruined feet, feet are numb, but everything else was okay. And then psychologically, I felt like everything was pretty like, you know, within reason of sleeping four hours a night. But then the last year I did it when I slept one hour a night the hallucinations were getting pretty wild. Like it was, it was 
like is so vivid and I couldn't like I couldn't not convince myself the things that I was seeing because there's plenty of times I knew that it wasn't real. You know, there is the first one was like just leaving Buena Vista at you know, the beginning of day three. And I saw uh, it was a Jeep parked up the dirt road that when you're leaving Buena Vista and it had this like carnival size stuffed deer on the roof of it. That was like seven feet tall. And I'm like, what are, what's going on? Why would you do that? And I kept like, I saw it in the distance and it, it felt like it was like in my brain, like a half an hour of watching this thing, Whoa. but you know, probably within like five minutes, finally getting to this Jeep, that was a rock with a tree on it. And, Whoa. and it was like, okay. And that was like the first one that was like, so vivid. And I'm like, all right, I'm, you know, my brain's losing it, but I'm still awake. I'm pedaling. Um, and then, uh, going like between Kokomo and Searle pass, but towards copper, I saw a, uh, it was a whole like camping setup with a truck and an easy up and a tent and all the coolers and stuff. But I'm like, really happy to think I'm like, no, no, this is an Alpine trail. There's no road up here. And so I was like, okay, brain that can't be there. Like it just can't, but I couldn't unsee it. And it was just so vivid. And, uh, you know, I'm just like, oh boy, like I'm losing it, but just strange. Cause it would come and go like plenty of times where physically or mentally you felt, you know, focused and still going well, but, um, you know, then, then completely falling apart. And then like the last day, uh, I was going up by Buffalo Creek and I'm dodging a pelican flying out of the ground at me. Like it was like, it terrified me. Like I was just like swerving away and all like worried, like, oh, what was that? And then, uh, and then I, I pedaled over a route that had like kind of the broad thing. And I'm like, well, okay, my brain thought that was a pelican beak. Like I don't live near water. I, I don't think I'd ever seen a pelican in real life, but yet here's one coming and attacking me. Just crazy. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Um, I didn't have any full on hardcore hallucinations like that. But one thing you did say that resonates is, seeing a rock or a tree and have it just for a second. I'm like, Whoa, that looks like a person or, huh, that shape looks like some like brand's logo. Like, why is that brand's logo out here? But I would snap out of it super quickly. But the thing that's interesting is what sounds like we have in common is those hallucinations never just like appear out of thin air. It's always an object you see that's real, whether it's a tree, a stump, whatever. And it manifests in a strange way. Um, for sure interesting yeah 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 yeah. absolutely Um, and then and then i also i had this really weird sensation that it wasn't me riding i was just observing this and it just i think reinhold messner had some stuff like this too that i was reading one of his books but like i distinctly remember from copper going up over the 10 mile range like no, I wasn't riding. I was watching and I'm like, the guy that's doing the shift right now, he's not eating right. He's not drinking right. But I'm like, ah, you know, he's the new guy. He'll figure it out. He'll learn how to do this right. And it was just so weird. It, it felt like it was like a half an hour long of just observing this happening. And then it was dawn on me. I'm like, wait, it's me. I'm the only one here. There's no one else riding my bike. Like, and it was just so real feeling. Yeah. And uh, I just... Yeah, pretty wild and and it just yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. It's just so strange. You get some bizarre stuff happening out there. Yeah, speaking of that stretching of time or just time in general, the way time kind of stretches and then 
condenses. That is so strange too. And you mentioned Kokomo and Searle Pass earlier. Um, that was probably probably my lowest point emotional or not, yeah, just mentally and emotionally. Um, and one thing that I distinctly remember is how time just seemed to stretch. I think I was there. I mean, one of the, the, <laughs> one of the big mistakes I made is I started quite late. Um, I started at 8am in Durango because mm-hmm. I had this terrible plan. Um, I'm going to call out Travis Brown right now cause he was complicit <laughs> in it. Um, but we'd been talking about how, you know, you know, theoretically you could ride hotel to hotel and just completely leave all the camping gear at home and just take, uh, an emergency bivy. Um, and that's what I did. Um, but the, that plan was dependent on stopping in Silverton and having a super short day the first day okay, and then doing an absolutely insane push from Silverton to Cottonwood where I had a lodge um, scheduled um, on, on day two. But after I rode Durango to Silverton and that, that's why I started late. Um, after yep. I rode Durango to Silverton, I was like, that was really hard. And that was 80 miles. At tomorrow, I do not want to do that plus a hundred miles. Like that makes zero sense on paper. We yeah. convinced ourselves that it makes sense. Real life application, no way. So I just kept going. I was like, well, I have an emergency bivy. If I get tired, pull over and sleep. So I was riding Kokomo at maybe two, three a.m., two a.m., something like that. It was bitterly cold, um, far colder. I mean, another mistake I made doing it in late September. Um, yeah. I knew it was going to be cold, but it was way colder even than it, than expected. It was below freezing as I was climbing. And, uh, that was hard mentally at the time of night was hard mentally. And I just remember looking at the, the course profile beforehand and seeing that Kokomo was an average of 10% grade and thinking, you know, that's steep, but that's not too bad. Yeah. Uh, and I remember looking at your Strava and looking at Lachlan Strava and seeing that y'all had averaged, like two and a half miles an hour for this climb. And I was like, what? Like, what is going on here? Like, why were these guys so broken on this climb? Like, it's only a 10% grade. Yeah. I, got, I got on it and I was like, this is not 10% grade. This is like 20 plus. Yeah. So I thought, okay, it flattens out. There'll be some descents in the middle. Like so, somehow um, the average gets brought down to 10% grade. And it just didn't feel like it was happening. And I felt like I could not have been moving more slowly. And at that point, I was still in the same realm as your record. So that was still in the back of my mind. And I thought, okay, you know, keep your head in the game. This is what you came for. This will be your hardest moment. Just all that self-talk that happens. But I literally felt like I was standing still. And I finally decided to check my elapsed time for the the climb because I knew roughly about what it had taken Lachlan, taken Mm -hmm. you, taking some of the other folks. And I felt like I was on Kokomo for five hours and it had been 50 minutes at that point. And I realized just how, when all of these other crazy factors are going on and inputting to your brain in unusual ways, your understanding of time just completely changes. Um, And on the one hand, I was thinking, okay, good. I am going up this climb at a fine pace compared to what is normal. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, good Lord, I'm only halfway up this climb. How does this keep going like this? So anyway, what, um, I'm curious if you have any memories from absolute low points or maybe even your experience with Kokomo and Searle, because when I got on top, 
and it, I crested Kokomo and then it kept climbing. And there were these little stream crossings that were kind of frozen over. I literally thought this, I have found hell. Like this is, <laughs> this is hell on earth. <laughs> and it was just an absolute new lifetime low psychologically. But anyway, I'd be curious yeah. to your experiences on that. <laughs> well, that one, see, I, I actually like that. Not that I like that hike a bike, but that section always there seemed there was going to be fun somewhere nearby. Um, but for me, it was like every year doing it, I could never ride that area in daylight. And it drove me nuts because here I was doing it five years in both directions with different detours. Oh. And I still couldn't see this damn thing in the daylight. Yeah. And I'm like, I got to figure this out. And so like on that last year, I hit, I think I was Leadville at like three and I started doing all the math because I had a pretty good mental splits of like all the major points from doing it enough. And I was like, wait a second, if I just keep pinning it, I should be at least at the top of Searle before it gets dark. So that was just super inspiring to me. So I was just like giving it everything I could just to see this damn place in the daylight. Yeah. Um, Cause it yeah. is believable. I mean, even in my complete utter despair, you can tell somewhere deep inside, it is an unbelievably breathtakingly gorgeous place. For sure. For sure. But, you know, on that spot specifically, I remembered on my last year seeing some tire tracks from some like big blocky minions or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that'd be fun right now. You know, being <laughs> thinking of these guys being fresh with a big bike, getting ready for this, you know, descent of a lifetime. Yeah. And here I am, you know, day three, just completely like my hands can barely hang on to anything. But, uh, you know, and you got these little pinner tires that, you know, lighter and faster rolling and your your bike feels so bloated down too but um yeah my low point like the one after going from copper over the 10 mile range that was pretty heinous like that's that's a really really hard section um yeah like you know my only real low point was the second year i did it i ended up quitting i think i had some sort of like the food i was eating wasn't working with me and maybe i was getting heat stroke and i just couldn't get in calories and I was trying to go up Fusus after Highway 50. And I was like literally like taking a step and then taking two breaths to rest and then taking another step where you're just like pushing your bike, squeezing your brake levers, walking up to your bike and then like leaning on it. Yeah. And that was kind of demoralizing. Yeah. Um, but I think like, you know, I think you were saying it's, you just, you kind of embrace it because you're like, I came here for this. It's like every cell in my body is going to be used to get to this, the end of this thing. and you kind of like, you will never be that tired. You will never be that sore. And it's just, if you, if, you know, for me, it was like, this is what I'm here for. Like, I want to, you know, feel everything, see everything. And it's like that whole experience is kind of why you want to do it. And I don't want to shut it out. I don't want to, you know, like I, I've got a thing with people with MP3 players, you know, listening to music and I'm like, no, I want all of that stuff, Yeah, you know? Yeah. In, in golf in it. Um, yeah. the harder, like, I think one of the big ones in the very beginning was the first year I did it, we had a lot of rain and, uh, hitting, going from Denver to Durango, the end of the first day, it was able to get, you know, I got to highway nine by between Frisco and Breck and it's starting to get dark, but you know, like yourself, you're, it's like 7 PM, you're going to keep going. But the whole 10 mile range was engulfed in clouds, white drizzle, with like little flashes, you know, not the bolt lightning bolts, but like the flash of lightning. And I'm like, 
wait, what am I doing? You know, like you're not going to stop and rest, but you need to keep going, but you're going to go up into a mountain. Like, you know, that not that, you know, I didn't know everything about mountaineering and stuff, but like, that's one of the things that you don't do, right? Like everyone's programmed in Colorado to get to the summit by noon and then get out of there. And that's what you do. But here it is like getting dark and you're going to go up a range that goes to over 12,000 feet. You're like, this makes no sense. <laughs> it's so like, it's, it's so weird how you get so consumed and chained to this goal and just all of the self self-preservation logic, logic. typically guides you. You just ignore. I mean, and that's part of the reason too, that I, I justified doing this in late September is like, yeah, it's going to be colder, but at least there's not going to be the monsoons. Um, and I mean, basically for all intents and purposes, you're just going to one of the most lightning prone areas of the country and just putting yourself out there for four days and being like, here, I am a target indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so. But I'm like, it, it, it meant so much to me that I'm like, I don't care. I'm going like, yeah, you're going to roll the dice every time, but the odds are still not, you know, it's not like 50% of the people are going to get zapped, but I'm like, well, the odds are fairly low. I'm going for it. I'm not going to stop. Like it, you definitely look back now and you're like, yeah, it's making some pretty stupid decisions. <laughs> you ever feel like you got to the point with the obsession of this goal that you were willing to die for it almost? Uh, I, I felt like that the last year for sure. I was like, everything's, there's nothing stopping me. And you just, you get so damn tired too. You're like, how can your heart and lungs keep doing this? And you're like, I'm just going to collapse and just completely like, it's going to end it. But I, for me, it was like, I'm going to keep going forward. Like I'm not stopping until I cross that damn finish line and probably unhealthy, but it just felt so like, I don't know. It, it just seems so important in my life and, you know, still proud of what I did, but you don't really at the same time, don't want to encourage other people to do it that way. No, not at all. And, and that's one thing that was interesting to me during this learning process is, um, you know, the bike pack racing world has, it certainly has developed some, some superstars now like Leo Wilcox or uh, some of the other folks who have, who have transcended the bike pack racing world and are bringing a lot more, awareness to the bike pack racing world. I mean, Lachlan's another example. These, these folks with mm-hmm. really big followings. Um, but traditionally it seems like the bike pack racing world is a fairly tightly knit, humble kind of quieter core group of folks who don't necessarily want to advertise what they're doing. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And I think it also, uh, has made it so that Honestly, folks like me and, and others don't understand how hard it is and how different it is than traditional racing or even the traditional race experience. It's so much more a blend of kind of like you alluded to mountaineering and just survivalism. Um, and I think because those stories haven't necessarily been told as thoroughly at this point, people underestimate it. I know I underestimated it. And I think the general cycling population doesn't have the first idea of how next level gnarly it is. Um, and I just think that's an, that's an interesting dynamic and probably in a lot of ways for, for the better um, because it is definitely not, not for everybody by any means. Yeah. And 
I mean, you look at the field too, like the CTR has been, you know, getting around, I think 80 people starting for the last quite a few years, give or take. And, you know, a lot of people, they want this adventure of a lifetime and they're, they're doing it at a different level, but there's a couple of us that are just off the deep end and, you know, it just, it's, it's larger than life. And, um, it, but that's, you know, the difference of the people that finish in six or seven days is still a huge endeavor versus the people that are trying to go four or sub four, like, and, and the amount of, it's that like every single second of your life for days on end has to be a hundred percent devoted to going forward. And it's like, that is so draining. Like you think of, you know, anything else that you're doing for like a sustained amount, it, you can't wait to get done to just be like, I can do nothing for a bit here. And it's like, it, like it's, it's the mentally, like, you know, the grit of people like Hefe that, you know, I, you know, seeing his results in the vapor 125, I would be a couple of hours ahead of him. He's still a good athlete, but you know, not that same kind of racer kind of background, but yet you put him on the Colorado trail and he turns into a God, like nothing will stop him. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty wild to see how that, you know, cause my two hour racing thing, I started to do better and better and like live my life as a monk of doing nothing, but you know, anything I could do for training, but I reached a genetic limit and I got enough to like, I was able to start in a world cup, but I wasn't going to compete for anything. Right. I was just pack fodder, but that still meant a lot for me, but it's just like, yeah, I, the genetics I have aren't going to get me to, you know, that kind of, I'm not going to make a living off of this. But then when you throw that into the Colorado trail race, it's like just being stubborn can get you that little bit extra that a lot of people aren't willing to do. And that's, you know, that's completely fine, but it just, it helped find me a place, right? Like here I was that I could take, you know, doing pretty well as an athlete, but not that level. But then if I just be like as stubborn and dumb as I possibly can on top of a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of the technological piecing things together. It was just this perfect puzzle for me that I, that was life. That was life for a while. Yeah. Yeah. The thought crossed my mind. I think one of those weird delirious thoughts late, late, late on day two, where I, I was just sort of, uh, uh, thinking about what you just touched on, you know, the combination of the required athleticism, um, the problem solving and the taking care of yourself and all the logistics and then just the sheer grit. I was like, man, if I'm the military and I'm trying to recruit like potential absolute super badass capable Navy SEALs or whatever, like seems like a decent pool. Like these, these crazies that crush this Colorado trail race or some of the other absolute like AZT 750, whatever it is. These God, these are the some of the hardest people I know. Like yeah, and like tour to vie doing that for like two or three weeks. You're like, what? Yeah. Speaking of your race background, actually, so quickly, you you've raced some World Cups. Um, you said you had a, a a modest career racing shorter stuff that set you up well for this this other sort of thing. Um, when did you do your first Colorado trail race? How old were you? Uh, it was 2010 and I was, uh, 33. Okay. Yeah. And um, then, yeah, I just successively did all of them. I just had to miss 2014 till yeah. 2015. And then, uh, yeah. And then you had your, your crown jewel achievement, that white Buffalo you'd been chasing in 
called it good. Uh, yeah, yeah, like that was never quite my intent, but one of the problems, like, you know, I had ambitions of doing other ones. Like I liked that style and I wanted to see more. Like one Colorado trail was unlocking the puzzle and doing it over and over got you better at it. But I still, I like just the sheer adventure, like the first year of starting in Denver and pedaling to Durango. And you're like, what the hell did I just do? I pedaled across the state. Like, that's amazing. And then seeing, well, Arizona trail, I got to do that. And then, you know, I did a rod, well, maybe and tour divide, but then I had a full-time job and, you know, for years I had two weeks of vacation. So I'm using half of my vacation time for this one thing to annihilate myself. <laughs> and, you know, luckily I live near one of the ends. So logistics wise, it only basically took an extra day of travel to get to Durango to the Springs. And it just, it was kind of this weird, like function of, okay, I've still got my career. I'm not going to quit my job. Like my job is amazing. I don't want to leave it. But at the same time, you're like, oh man, you're shackled to your desk so much. So to have the lifestyle of like the Lales that just, you know, they can afford to just, well, I want to do tour to vital, just pedal from Alaska, right? Like I would love to do that, but somehow my life just headed in a different direction and I couldn't leave it. So when I finished the Colorado trail, I had some other ambitions. I also acknowledged like how much it was beating up my body, but, um, I also, during pretty much when I started the Colorado Trail, I started getting deep into rock climbing too. And so here I was after, you know, the year I, 2015, finally got like what I really thought I could capable of out there on the Colorado Trail. And at the same time, I'm like, well, rock climbing's awesome, but I quit rock climbing every like April. And then I don't get back into it until about October when my hands can finally work again to climb after doing the Colorado Trail. So every year I take this big siesta from, from climbing and then always have to work back up. And, you know, climbing has these really amazing like alpine stuff. I was mostly doing like trying to do hard sport climbing. Um, but you go like Rocky Mountain National Park going up the diamond. It's like, that is insane. And to be able to, it's like, well, I don't get to use the bike, but it's this crazy adventure that you can look at the side of a mountain and be like, I can go up anything. So I had been bike racing for like 30 years thinking I can still do more things, but if I keep bike racing, it's t stopping me from doing these other things that I wanted to do. So it, it, you know, it was kind of that weird thing where I'm like, well, I still want to race, but I want to try like, what, what could I be like doing all this rock climbing and getting better at that instead of just having to have this thing that just fits in the corners of my life when it can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of a mix between, I feel super satisfied with racing, but I've got more things I want to do. And it just a little uncertainty like that, that kind of the focus of like exactly what I wanted to do wasn't quite there, but um, the climbing was really just taking over. And so, uh, you know, that was a big part of it. And then, you know, I had a couple of bad injuries that needed some surgeries in, I think it was 2017 and I struggled to pedal a bike for like a year and a half. So you know, then all of a sudden here I am now with like a bunch of years went by and that fitness is, uh, you know, I can still do okay on a bike, but a lot of that fitness is, is pretty far gone. And the amount of work it took and the, the sacrifices that it took to get to that level. Yeah. And like yourself, you do something really well. It's hard to do it at kind of like this medium level. Yep. And, yep. and so 
everything's fresh and new climbing and same thing with the adventures. Like there's all these, you know, you look at the internet with climbing places and there's thousands of these areas I want to go check out and see. And so it's all fresh and new. And that's been really inspiring for me too, rather than like Colorado's amazing to mountain bike. And it's, it's not that I don't like those trails, but I've ridden them a bunch. Whereas I've never climbed all of these rock climbs before. For sure. and, and that's kind of like just pushed me in a different direction right now. Yeah. 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 And you, you actually, uh, it was, it, <laughs> it made me pretty happy to hear, um, during my ride, uh, Nicole had told me, um, and, and my team manager, John, that, uh, you'd popped up in Leadville while I was riding. Um, yeah. and I'd had a, a mechanical issue with a brake that required some fixing and stuff and had taken my time in Buena Vista. So I was behind schedule as what had been predicted. So I, I missed you. But yep. uh you it sounded like you you chatted with them for a little while and um <laughs> I think Nicole was pretty ready for me to stop beating myself up at that point. So she <laughs> sort of passed along the information uh, that you'd shared about your your hands being really uh you know incurring some pretty serious damage to this day um from from these Colorado trail rides. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, even if rock climbing weren't in your life, you not, you wouldn't necessarily even, uh, be able to have the relationship with the mountain bike that you used to and in part or mostly because of this obsession with the Colorado trail. Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's more than just the Colorado trail. Like part of it was doing the race was really abusive, but then I would go to angel fire for like testing for rock shocks, you know, we'd spend a day at work, go to angel fire and I would do like 16 runs a day. And then another 16 runs the next day, like that same mentality is just stuck in my brain. And yeah. so here I am doing like, was it 60,000 feet of elevation loss in a weekend yeah. and, you know, smashing down the biggest rocks you can find on a downhill bike. And, and it just, it felt like over the years of doing that, there's something in my hands are kind of deteriorating a little bit. So I can get on a bike and ride like I want to, but as the hours progress, my hands just start to feel like they get annihilated, like Colorado trail race style. But instead of taking days for that to happen, it starts to happen in hours. And, you know, I can still hang on to the bike, but they just keep getting beat up more and more. Um, and it just, it's, it's kind of that thing of acknowledging you're like, well, is this actually fun anymore? So you know, on any particular time, I could probably go and do like a five, six hour ride. I'm okay. But if I do that, like at a, at a more constant pace after like a week of riding regularly, after like 15 minutes, my hands start to hurt. So I'm kind of like, ah. you know, I, at first I wasn't sure, like, cause rock climbing is not good for your hands. Mountain biking seems bad. And then I've kind of built up an obsession going, you know, to a weightlifting gym and doing that like four times a week all the time at lunch. And I'm like, I don't know which one of these things is causing me the problem. <laughs> but then over the couple, you know, the years of then just having through elimination from recovering from injuries, not mountain biking, it turned out like, whoa, my hands feel really good, even if I'm climbing, even if I'm lifting weights. And so it just seemed like the mountain biking component on the hand specifically is like, uh, it's starting to be a little bit rough, but you know, it, like I said, it was like all the months building up for the race. It was going to Crested Butte or going to Durango and riding like my brains out, you know, I'd, for years I would do the, uh, the, 
the Durango Dirty Century, which is you know a good ten hour jaunt from Durango up to uh, was it Celebration Lake and then back. And then the next day I would go do like a six or seven hour ride. And then the next day I maybe do one more to just like bury myself on yeah. a regular basis, all with the idea of doing the Colorado trail race. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know, like I never got numbness, but the strength just deteriorates and it just gets to a point where you're like, Oh, is this really fun anymore? And so, you know, I don't know, clinically, like I'm, I'm also getting a little bit older too, and that's probably part of it. I shouldn't be over the hill yet. Not quite in a rocking chair, but it's, <laughs> are you, you know, 40 ish at this point? I'm 43. Yeah. Um, so did you do anything while you were chasing this Colorado trail goal to mitigate the impact on your body? I know you ran a somewhat surprisingly long travel bike. You had a 160 mil fork. Did you do yeah. anything like grip wise, handlebar wise? Cause I know Kurt, I was talking to Kurt Ref Snyder last week. Um, he has granted, he, he gets after this kind of insanely aggressively. He does a, a few of these major, major efforts a year. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like his, his hands are, are pretty well compromised permanently quote unquote at this point. And so he actually runs an elastomer handlebar. Um, okay. Did you ever do anything kind of off the wall like that? Because I I know I want to do this again. I think what's likely is that it'll be years, um, just because I do have a good career doing the shorter race stuff, and I for sure compromise that. But post that career, this will return as the obsession. Like I just know it. Um, and and I'm I'm already thinking about you know do I use some of those you know ergon grips that have the kind of flange like always problem solving mm -hmm. hardens like. All kinds of crazy off the wall stuff you'd never do for for shorter races, but does anything come to mind in that regard? Uh, so the first year it was a huge concern because that was like I was scared if I did it again, like my hands would just be stuck and never work again. Like that was like a real fear in me. I'm like, oh, should I even do this a second time? Um, so I was looking at other solutions, and I tried ergon grips. They like commuting with that. My hands were going numb. My my body didn't like those. Um, but so I ended up liking ESI grips that just have no lockering on the outside. And that seemed to help a lot because I tend to like my palm is just kind of dangling off the end of my handlebar. And then, like you said, I was like, you know what, if it's a limiting factor of your hands, I want the most suspension I can get out there. Like why incur any more shock if you don't have to? And the reality is a long travel suspension fork versus the medium ones are almost identical weight. So uh, you know, I was using a 160 pike on there every single time. Um, tires, I was kind of tempted to go maybe a little bit bigger in size, but I ended up sticking with 2.2 icons just because two, the two. fast rolling, yeah, wow. fast rolling lightweight. Narrow, yeah. But, you know, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to have a quicker rolling, but then I've got the suspension to try to help. And it's mm -hmm. controlled travel to not just a tire impacting. Um, and then the other one that I quickly learned too, when it rains, you just keep riding because there's no point stopping. You don't have the gear. And then what you want to do is when you start, most people start, they'll like take what they need. And they'll usually a backpack is like what you finally end up using. And now obviously the bike bags have progressed a lot since 2010, but like get all of the weight off your body. And it got so much like, I didn't even want to put a power gel in my back pocket. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it was just like, 
everything on the bike and that's it. Like just don't like any extra loading on you is going to add that pressure into your hands. So anything you can do to get that away is kind of what it comes down to. So, you know, I didn't, you know, no other weird trickery, just pretty much my normal all mountain setup with just lighter wheels is really what I was doing. Cause I don't know, it seemed to work. And my only thing was I'd, every year I'd shop around for new, like see all the new bikes coming out and figure out what had the most open triangle front space with a long travel bike. So it was just like my number one, like I was literally buying a bike for the Colorado trail race. Yeah, and if I could find something with more room to put a bigger triangle, triangle bag in there, I would. Yeah. 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 So and, do you feel like physically your the, the hands are the biggest limiting factor for this ride? I, yeah, I mean, you know, they're mentally for sure too is yeah. the big one of getting that. But physically for me, like the hands, that's always the the deal. And it just because I always found myself too, like you go down some gnarly descent, like you're ripping down something, your brain can be like, if you crash, you're gonna die. Like yeah. you're just you're not in a good place. You can't react to things. But yet you can still hang on and I think do a really well job, even though it's like when you stop, you're like, Whoa, that hurts so much. And then you go to like, take a zipper off the jacket off and you can't pinch the zipper. You're like, okay, my hands are really bad. But yet when it really comes down to it, you can still control your bike. And so, um, but yeah, it just like, it, it just kind of builds and builds and builds and that, you know, it's the pressure points, right? Your feet, your butt, your hands, and, uh, just limiting how much loading gets on, on those three points is where it's at. Yeah. So same thing to dropper post, get that out of the way. Yep. Yeah. The, the dropper. I mean, and thank you. I, that's so cool that you worked on the access, uh, reverb dropper. I mean, that thing has completely changed the way that I ride. Um, and obviously it was, it was massive on, on my Colorado trail experience, but going back to what you said in regards to your body can be so broken, but you can still just be on point from an actual bike, bike handling standpoint. That's something that really, struck me descending monarch uh a little after midnight cold cold. i'd slept 30 minutes in the first 48 hours my hands were going my feet hurt everything hurt um i haven't really ridden at night before with lights and so just learning to descend with all the weird shadows and everything that was an experience but i was ripping i was absolutely on one i'd never descended all of monarch and okay. just like off the brakes, gapping through these rock gardens. And I was just blown away by how you can go into this autopilot mode and all the years of experience of practicing and becoming a good bike handler, you just go into autopilot and it just takes care of itself. And you almost have this out of body experience that just does not make sense. Where it's yeah. like another being has taken over and is like, don't worry, you know how to do this. And uh, just descending great. And then you know, I stopped to get something to, Oh no, I stopped because my pedal fell off the spindle, but I remember stopping and I could barely peel my fingers off the bars. And I was like, how have I just been absolutely ripping this descent so well? But anyway, yeah, that is an identical experience for sure. And props to you for like, you know, not having experience with night riding. Cause we're typically, I don't know what you had, but like your light systems are terrible out there. Cause your battery economy is so important. Yeah. And you know, you can still barely see, but yeah, it turns out it's still really fun. Even though you're annihilating yourself, mountain biking is rad and you get to do it like 23 hours a day for four days straight on some just super amazing trail. 
that's another thing. That's another way I convinced myself to even try this thing is I, I'm not a, a huge sleeper. Like I don't love sleeping. I honestly, I think it's kind of boring. I mean, you, <laughs> don't, you don't get to be doing other awesome stuff while, while you're sleeping. And I love riding my mountain bikes. So I was like, this is great. You barely sleep and you just ride all day. This is the perfect, yep. the perfect challenge. But anyway, um, we'll start wrapping this up cause I've, I've taken a full hour of your time already, but, um, are there any sections that come to mind for you that became most feared and then, or, or most disliked, most dreaded, and then follow up question. Do you have any sections of this trail that are your favorite? Um, well, yeah, definitely the most feared is when you go from, uh, I forget the segment number, but like South of the Monarch crest area, there's all that stuff just like beyond Sergeant's Mesa that's just blown out nasty. It's actually still pretty high, but you're in the trees and I keep feeling like I'm going in circles and the first year I did that, it was in the dark and there's all these trees that have no bark that are just like creaking around. Yeah. Like there's nothing about that's redeeming. There's no water anywhere. There's no views. And so, you're so yeah. You're saying the, the kind of the, the hike a bikey blown out ledgy, uh, climb up to sergeants proper. Yeah. Yeah. That whole from you, it would have been all like, um, I'm struggling on the trailhead, but you would have done that long road detour. And then once you get off of that, yeah. basically it's like, you know, four hour section, five yeah. hour section of just like, yeah, nothing yeah. redeeming. I don't care for that spot at all. Yeah. Um, and what was the second part of your question? The good part? Uh, just a, a favorite section, uh, a part that you really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that's amazing, but I think just the chunk, like segment 22 and 23, from Spring Creek over to um, Stony Pass, like being up in like full above treeline Alpine yeah. for an, like almost an entire like what I think going fast is like eight hours for this Colorado Trail race pacing. Yeah, it's just amazing being up there and being in that terrain. You're like, look at where I am. I'm with a bike, and inevitably it's going to be like at some point it's going to get dark with you up there, and you're like, I'm in the mountains with the bike. In like, it doesn't matter what the day is and I'm just going to keep on moving forward. And that just so much represents like what that event is. And, you know, it's not necessarily the best riding sections, but it's just like, you're never going to get out there without doing that damn race. And so it's, it's just like, it encompasses what you're out there. Like, it's just that adventure feeling of it. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. That for sure is definitely my top. Yeah. Yeah. Um, couple last just personal curiosity questions in regards to strategy. Um, did you, uh, what did you take uh, sleep wise, um, equipment wise? And then also what was your fueling strategy just in terms of food choice and, and stashing it and all that sort of thing? Um, yeah, sleep wise, I feel like I'm really the outlier here. I always took a sleeping bag. So I had like a 32 degree little pinner sleeping bag. And I just felt like, I don't have hardly any provisions, right? Like basically my, my choice of gear is, do I need it to be comfortable? That doesn't matter. Do I need it to not die? Okay. That's important. Take that. And then the ones, the sleep bag was like the only thing if something really bad happens, at least I have this. So, um, yeah, cause I, I, for most of it too, I was prepared to like always try to sleep a little more cause I didn't want to know where anyone else was. You know, and I never took a phone with me when I was doing it. So I had no idea who. So the, the only thing I could tell is, you know, normally in most of the races, I was one of the, you know, if I wasn't the first, I was second or third with Hefe and Ethan. 
Um, and you go through a mud puddle and you look for tire tracks. Like that was your only indication of what was going on. But like, if they were in front, I didn't care. It's like, I will, if my strategy was sleeping four hours, I'm going to stop when it makes sense and sleep for four hours. I don't care if I'm going to lose time because I'm going to catch it back up. And it was just, it was kind of, you know, it was really hard to shut that out because you knew if someone was around you, like, oh, if I'm just in front, if I sleep, I'm going to wake up, he's going to go past me. And it, it, you know, definitely a bit of a mental head game there, but um, it was, you know, I was just really trying to stick to my guns of what I thought was going to be the best to get across uh, to the end there. And did you take a, a bivy or if it was raining, you just keep riding? Well, the, the first years I actually had a little tiny Cuban fiber uh, tarp that I could string up in the trees if I had to, or wrap myself up like a burrito. And it was, you know, it was like, um, I think 120 grams. So, you know, the amount of weight that I had versus what you could get was really good, but you know, never any sleeping mat or anything like that. But it was, um, I, you know, I felt like I could actually be pretty safe. It was slow and clunky. And if I didn't have to, I wouldn't take it out. But, you know, in the latter years, I switched that out and I just ended up bringing a survival bivy sack, but I never actually opened it up once. So I would just keep riding until I could find a dry spot under a tree and then just lay out my sleeping bag. And, um, you know, cause I figure if you were going to try to sleep, you needed to sleep. And I heard the stories of Hefe crawling into his, he would just wear all of his clothes, go into his bivy sack and then get probably like one REM cycle and then wake up shivering cold and then have to start riding yeah. again. And it just, uh, yeah, I, you know, I definitely, it just, to me, it just seemed like, well, if you're going to sleep, you might as well actually get some sleep Yeah, and it's bulky, but it weighed a pound. So that's kind of what I did. Yeah. And I've already forgotten your second question. Oh yeah. Just food wise. Um, oh, food. Yeah. Um, the first years, I think I lived off the of cliff bars and then I started oh. hating cliff bars. Yeah. <laughs> um, way more into, you know, doing hundred mile races, I could live off of almost carbs too. So Cliff bars, gels, powders, you know, as much of that stuff as I could. And then it, the next year I experimented with like a ton more nuts and that I think backfired. So then subsequent years, it was like, I loved getting a frozen burrito at the gas station and then getting some of those really crappy cellophane wrap muffins. And those were amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it was like, you go to a gas station in a mountain, a uh, little mountain shop, right? Like, you're going to get Snickers bars and pop tarts, uh, you know, beef jerky. It, so I started to like kind of figuring just do whatever. And I acknowledged that, you know, in the buildup and I'm like, well, I'm going to go for my ride. And instead of making all my orders for all the normal sports nutrition I would do, I'm like, okay, let's just go to the store and get a bunch of junk food and get my body used to this. Yeah. So I was never sh like, I always felt too. It's like, you got to eat to move. So just keep shoveling your face full of as much as you could. So I typically was going for about 8,000 calories a day and I just, I couldn't consume Eating 8,000 calories a day. Yeah. Holy shit. So it was just like continue on. Like it was basically like 300 calories an hour and every hour I had mental notes of like, did I eat my 300 calories? Mm -hmm. Yes or no. And if not, you had to, like it wasn't debatable. Yeah. Um, I, like, yeah. And so I was, even like worrying about weight, I was still always taking a little bit of extra food. Um, since then I've been doing some pretty like backpacking trips, doing some stuff, getting sketchy with taking very little food and still being okay. But I just felt like you need the calories and it, it also keeps you warm too. Right. Yeah. So, 
I think that was um, one of my big mistakes is it was cold, but for what I was wearing, I was getting way colder than I should have. I mean, I had wool base layer, regular kit with arm warmers, uh, yeah. thick Mac, uh, puffy Patagonia hooded jacket and, mm-hmm. you know, a, a wind shell rain shell with a buff with thermal winter gloves. And I was still getting cold while I was riding. And I yeah. think some of that was probably just undershooting calories. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you you had about the same thing I did, although being a month later, you were in colder temps for sure. Um, but yeah, like getting the calories in just felt good. Although like in the evenings and there's definitely times where your stomach's just like, I've had too much. I can't do this. My saving grace was perpetuum powder. And I would just put like three packs in one water bottle. And it was like cake batter. Mm-hmm. And then you just, you know, just try to keep forcing yourself to get that. Cause mm-hmm. I just, it seemed like the latter part of the race, I had to resort to like half the time of like liquids only. Cause I just couldn't handle chewing and swallowing and the stomach just felt too overloaded. Yeah. But yeah, it was uh, it, like when I hit Leadville, it was always like, well, okay, there's a bike shop there. Can I get there before they close? Because yeah. then I can get, you know, the perpetuum powders and some power and some gel energy gels there and hopefully have a standing, ch- you know, fighting chance to get some more liquid stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I go to the gas station. You're like, all right, I'll go get like, you know, a liter of chocolate milk and some of these other things. You're like, what's got the most calories that yeah. I can get down right now? Yeah. And you always felt like a hero when you left those places. Cause coming into it, you're just like, you've got this stuff and you just start hating things that you used to love like a day ago. Yeah, totally. And then, yeah, you get to that, you get to the gas station. You're like, okay, I want this, this, and this, and you have your list. And it's just like, this is so amazing. Like mm-hmm. food never tastes better than after you get like those chances to reset. It's and, just like, such a funny challenge. And in such contrast to, to typical racing, as you know, I mean, with typical, cross country style racers. If you have a bad night's sleep and you get seven hours and 45 minutes of sleep the night before a race instead of nine, you know, it's the end of the world. And if you don't have your special little pre-race dinner because you're in some weird part of the world, you know, that's going to get in your head psychologically. And then you go do this Colorado trail thing where you're riding in it. You're riding the whole time forget sleep. You're not sleeping and you're just eating junk food. (laughs) It's like all of the things you shouldn't be doing as a racer combined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Grimy, dirty. You you worry about all that. Like, Oh, I don't want to put my chamois on until just before my warm up. And here you're like, well, you're kind of living in the same pair of shorts for four days. Oh, so true. And you just, you know, Oh man. Yeah. That's so true. It's such a wild opposite of the spectrum thing. All right, man. I think I've taken plenty of your time. Thank you so much. This was uh, really, really enjoyable. And um, I just, man, I got so much respect for, for what you've done, uh, what you did. And I mean, physically is one thing, logistically is one thing, but what I really have admiration for, no matter what sport it is, or even non-sports, is just psychological grit. And, and now that I know what uh it's like to an extent um the logistics are cool the physical aspect is cool but just knowing how hard a man you are like how how much grit you have like so much so much respect dude honestly um really really impressive and thanks for what you do at rock shocks too that's that's a really cool connection um i feel really fortunate to be a part of that family as well yeah, thanks, Basin. It was great talking with you, and I can't wait to uh, see the next time you're out in the trail. I'll definitely be following your dot.
<laughs> yeah, we'll see when when that it is a win. It's not an if. It is a win. But yeah, when when is a big question mark. Um, does anything else come to mind? Is there anything else you wanted to touch on or? Uh, you know, we could probably keep talking for hours, but that was, yeah, could, it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks again for, uh, for taking the time and, um, all the best with all your future endeavors and, uh, we'll stay in touch. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Thanks. thanks Jesse. Bye. Bye. Thank y'all for listening. And thanks to Zwift for stepping up hugely. They're our presenting partner for the next six months. A really, really impressive commitment on their behalf. Um, it, it means so much in regards to what they think of the podcast, that they think our little project here is worthy of a partnership that's significant. It's just really humbling, and I couldn't be more excited to have them on board. Uh, it's not just going to be them supporting this podcast, though. We're going to be doing some really fun initiatives on Zwift, some group rides, potentially some custom gear. Those bits and pieces are still coming together, but stay tuned. Some pretty exciting stuff there. Speaking of exciting, school is back in session, y'all, with Zwift Academy. You can join Zwift Academy to gain insight into your strengths on the bike and learn how to elevate your performance with Zwift training. Uh, you can take your fitness, your avatar, and potentially even your cycling career to new heights. That's right. If you're an outstanding performer, the most outstanding performer out of the tens of thousands of participants, you could Earn yourself a pro contract with Alpacin Phoenix, that's Matthew Vanderpool's team, or all you ladies out there, Canyon SRAM, the women's world tour team. And that is just crazy to me. But regardless of, of your goals, whether you're trying to earn a pro contract or you just want to uh, improve your cycling, feel part of a community wherever you are, go check out Zwift Academy. Go to Zwift.com slash ZA Road Men's for the Men's Zwift Academy or ZA Road Women's for the Women's Zwift Academy. I'm going to be checking it out. Sounds super cool. Thanks also to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing this show each and every week. Thank you all for listening each and every week. And we will catch you each and every week. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>